Well, welcome back. That was a short break. Sorry, guys. You're stuck with me again. Um, well, I want to turn our attention to our last, at least, topic for this uh, particular weekend. Um, and that is a good time for a good time. And I want to talk about uh, just the subject uh, of leisure. Uh, and while that may not sound exciting, um, I want to convince you that it is first. Uh, but, you know, if what we're saying is true, um, if we need to grow down and delight and to pay attention and partake, um, one needs time to do those things. You know, they, they don't just uh, happen upon us, not usually anyway. Not that you can't uh, be thankful in every engagement, but even to uh, reorient yourself to do it rightly does take a bit of time. Um, and I'm not saying you need to set aside hours and hours each day, for Christ really does play in 10,000 places, uh, as Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote. Uh, but time is required in order to notice and to delight and to grow in thankfulness and to realize our smallness. And we live in a time where busyness is viewed uh, as a virtue. And I want to try to convince you, at least in part this morning, that that is a lie uh, and that you should try to avoid being a liar with it. Um, we live in the midst of a culture where productivity and busyness really are considered uh, positive characteristics uh, of, of the hardworking one. We live in a world of life hacks. You know, they increase our productivity, or so we're told, uh, by saving us time. And what do we do with that saved time? Well, we use it to do more stuff. And if we're not doing more stuff, we're at least staring down at the device that was supposed to free up all of this time. You know, the history of the American technological revolution began with the idea uh, that all this would lead to more leisure uh, and more true, you know, relaxation. But it has led to ever more doing instead. Uh, even our joys, you'll notice, they're not enjoyed, they're documented. They're noted, they're recorded. Uh, and if they're not, you know, were they really joys? You know, if a party is thrown in the forest and it isn't posted on social media, <laughs> did it really make a sound, you know? Um, the word of the day, our day anyway, is optimize, you know. Uh, maybe some of you are Fitbit wearers. Do we have any of those in here? Uh, yeah, see, I, I knew it. Okay. <laughs> we had a secretary at one of the churches I was at. She was, you know, she had just gotten her Fitbit. And I remember one day she came in the office and she was furious. And I said, you know, what, what is the problem? She said, I walked around all day today and I didn't have my Fitbit on. So it was all for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, these are a complete waste of movements, you know, if they're not recorded by the Fitbit. Um, consider our culture in relation to things like motherhood. You know, many young mothers suffer guilt because they didn't, quote-unquote, get anything done all day. You know, they just changed diapers, fed a creature who can't fend for itself and would die if left unattended. They spent time bonding and giving themselves away, making memories as well as, you know, the feelings of safety and belonging. But nothing other than that, you know, got done. They used to make 50 widgets a day before Bobby was born. Uh, but now they're just, you know, making a whole human. Um, you know, busyness is seen as a virtue. Uh, as one author writes, I am so busy, we say. And we say this to one another with no small degree of pride, as if our exhaustion were a trophy. And our ability to withstand stress, a mark of real character, the busier we are, the more important we seem to ourselves and we imagine to others, to be unavailable to our friends and family, to be unable to find time for a sunset, to whiz through our obligations without time for a single mindful breath. This has become the model of a successful life. 
I mean, how many of you feel guilty for even being here this weekend? <laughs> you know, did you consider what it would cost you economically to take this time off? You know, uh, did you ask, what is the profit of going? And did you mean by that, what will I check off my list? Or how will I increase, you know, what I have accumulated in this world? Uh, it is hard for us to take any sort of break from the norm without feeling some sense of guilt uh, in the doing of it. Uh, and even our rest in this culture is only in service to busyness. You know, we're, we're okay with rest as long as you're resting up so you can be more productive and work harder. Um, you know, rest for rest's sake is not a thing. It's rest in service to productivity. Um, what we do with our free time then becomes merely a continuation of our work. It, it's just, you know, a, a time out in the middle of the game, if you will. You know, busyness and service... Uh, we use our business and service to proving that we matter or at least forgetting that we might not matter. Uh, if you think of at least our culture and the fact that, you know, uh, whether we know it or not, you know, Nietzsche won in our culture pretty seriously in our nihilistic mindset. Uh, but we are busy as a culture trying to be, <laughs> meaning trying to, to prove that we matter in some way. Uh, we need to be productive in a way um, that... Uh, we as people at times need to be productive in a way that damages us, uh, but we do it because it's been in our DNA since the fall. I mean, the quest of fallen man is trying to prove that they're okay. You know, uh, part of what you do your, your, in the entirety of your life is trying to justify your existence. I mean, literally, we all need a justification. You know, Christian and non-Christian alike knows that for a fact. They may just not know the terminology for it. Uh, and we're constantly trying to justify our existence, to say to the universe, if we don't know the personal God, that we matter, right? And that we're not, uh, you know, guilty or unimportant. Or if we don't believe that, we're at least trying to be busy enough to forget that things might not be okay <laughs> and that we're coming to an end of all things at some point. Um, so we become busy to avoid the void by amusing ourselves to death, as one author writes. T.S. Eliot put it this way, Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration. So we're busy to avoid, we're busy to be okay. You know, this idea of self-justification, you know, the, the great philosopher and theologian Madonna wrote this um, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Uh, and that's not just true for her. She just said out loud what we're all thinking. Or we're busy to gain, to acquire. You know, where we, we live our lives as if acquisition is identity. You know, if I buy more, then I'll be more. And the consumer society we live in loves it, right? You know, who are you if you're not buying something? You know, how could you possibly be satisfied and content? You know, if you're content, you're a loser, you know. God forbid, you know, you be satisfied with what you own. We need you out as a client uh, and a consumer. And so we're always busy, you know, trying to accumulate in this way another form of our own self-justification. All of these things are hints and reflections of the fact that something has gone horribly awry with humanity. We act like slaves in our busyness, and then we baptize it as a virtue once we do it. You know, 
you know, we were originally delivered from slavery uh, in our redemption, you know, uh, in, in Israel, uh, from Egypt. Uh, and now, you know, even as Christians, we're like, man, how can I slave some more to really, you know, prove that I'm somebody? We refuse to do things like contemplate and, you know, just uh, enjoy. And then we call it good as we refuse it. But in the process of doing that, we lose our humanity. I mean, to say, take a moment and consider the roses or the lilies, as one great uh, man once said, or to take time to enjoy a sunset. For the pragmatist who believes in only producing, the question would have to be why. I mean, why waste your time with such nonsense? Truly, we lose the truest sense of what it means to be a human being. I mean, what is the good? Why are we here? Where are we going? These are the questions of life, and our busyness will never give us a moment's, notice, a moment's opportunity to answer those questions in any meaningful way. We lose the capacity and the desire to delight in the right things, things that would actually expand us as people instead of shrink us. In order to be expanded, we do need time. And so against the false virtue of busyness, I want us to see that leisure is time for the good. Um, we do need what the philosophers have, have termed leisure. Uh, not an RV, necessarily, or a bad suit from the 70s. Um, not just time off, either. You know, not just time off. Well, what is leisure if it's not these things? If a normal day, and biblically speaking this is true, if a normal day is a working day, right? Labor six days, and on the seventh you shall rest. Then leisure is its counterpart. It's the, if you will, abnormal, non-working day. Uh, and on this hiatus, we have an opportunity to confront um, our humanity and to reaffirm it as we do so. Uh, whereas work is about putting your hand to something in order to accomplish something, right? Uh, you know, the, the creation mandate. Leisure has as its root a desire to simply enjoy something, to take it in, to absorb. That is all that is accomplished, is the enjoyment, you know. You don't finish it and say like, all right, done, you know, we won the sunset. Um, leisure is the stopping of work in order to be active. So we stop something in order to be active. We stop working to actively enjoy and to engage. Um, but the very thought of doing this, of course, would presuppose something about man, that man must be more than just a worker. I mean, if you're, if you're to stop working, uh, then that must mean we exist for something more than work. If not, then we should just keep on working and grind it out day after day. Uh, you know, we are more than workers, dear comrades. Um, we are more than a producer, that there is something to this life, more to this life than accomplishment and acquisition. It's not just about acquiring and becoming something. There's more to our existence than that. I mean, the whole Cartesian project that is at war with Christianity finds its application here. Uh, you know, Rene Descartes' goal was to have science so explain the world that we will no longer have occasion to be in wonder. Why wonder when you can just explain everything? I mean, why have wonder when you can just Google it, you know? Uh, it would be like, you know, I learned today that this snow uh, is from the lake effect. Uh, where's, where's my friend that taught me that? Uh, and that is a wonderful fact, right? But if that's all you were to see, so for instance, you go out in the snow and you see millions of snowflakes, I mean, literally millions, not one of them the same, which is phenomenal, uh, 
And what I love about snow, I used to live uh, in, a, in a town that snowed, is that your yard could be really the worst yard in the neighborhood, which is, which is rough if you're half Dutch and you live around other Dutch people who really take care of their yards. But once it snowed a foot, my yard looked just as good as everyone else's. You know? <laughs> but if all you saw when you saw snow was, well, you know, that's when, you know, wind does this and hits this temperature and that's what... And instead of saying, like, well, like, look at the beauty of this, or, you know, feel it and taste it, literally taste it and touch it. These are, you know, the, the joys of snow are not merely in the explanation of the thing. Um, thunder has an explanation. Rain can be examined. Uh, and for Descartes, it's like once we explain it, there's nothing to get behind and beyond. You just have, you've explained it. That's what it is. There's nothing more to it. I mean, that quote that we read earlier this morning where the guy says, you know, I don't need to be in awe of something I do you know, any more than I need to be in awe of my arm. You know, there's nothing mysterious when I make cakes. I mean, not any more shocking than the fact that I have an arm that I apparently made. Uh, when people say stuff like that, you know, Descartes is live, uh, alive and well uh, in our way and system of thinking. Lewis nailed this particular uh, malady uh, when he wrote the character of Eustace Scrub uh, in The Magician's Nephew. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace, and his masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends called him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold in Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. Eustace Clarence liked animals, especially beetles, if they were dead and pinned on a card. He liked books, if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises in a model school. He had managed to hear them talking about Narnia and he loved teasing them about it. He thought, of course, that they were making it all up. He was far too stupid to make anything up himself. He did not approve of that. Uh, you know, but that idea that the world is just something to be explained, you know, that it's just a math problem, and you know, uh, you know, if you're a good engineer and a good mathematician, then you understand things. Instead of seeing that things are far more than what we see, and even the explanation or the natural explanation of them. I mean, the Bible teaches this, right? You know, we can explain in one sense lightning, but we can also say the Bible says, you know, lightning is you know, God's bolts that he throws from the sky down to the earth. And both of those things are totally true. You know, uh, that there are things behind the thing that we need to understand. Uh, and so leisure stops in order to just take things in and see them for what they are instead of trying to explain them, to delight in them. And leisure does things. It does things by not doing. Uh, as we talked about, work is normal. Normal days are working days. The question is, is that enough? Is a human life satisfied, filled up, and full by just finding a function in the world, doing it, and then dying. Uh, I think this is a part of the angst of our own age, right? We know we were made for something more, but no one will tell us what that is, and so we're left with this frustration of we're going to do this thing, get our nine-to-five, get a check, and die. Well, I might as well stay in my mom's basement and play video games, I mean, if that's all that there is. We were made for more, and there is more. And the question is, when is the time and where is the space to run into the world of more? Where will we run into that thing if we never stop and take a moment to consider it? Leisure is a stop in work in order to simply appreciate the world, to affirm it, and to be mystified by it, and thus to begin to grapple rightly with it again. 
who we are, where are we going, what is the point of continuing to work, being busy like the world, if we have no clue what the aim is, if we have no idea what the project we are working on is, if we don't have the plans in place, leisure helps recast the vision that makes sense of your vocation. It puts it in its proper place so that you can go about doing it rightly and realize that it's not the end-all, be-all. This is a temporary thing, this world of work. But the world of leisure won't be, as we'll see. To a world that tells us to stay busy or to live it up as our two options, we should be asking, busy for what? And what does living it up mean? And what does it matter? And why do we matter? Because in leisure, contemplation, we begin to see life for what it is. It is not something that we can fully control. It's not something that we have power over. That this world is not something we can manipulate with all of our scheming and hard work. Everywhere we look, the world will at least testify to this one thing. You are dependent. right? You need food from outside sources. You need air that you didn't purchase or make to breathe, you know. Uh, the old joke where the scientists come to God and say they don't need him anymore, that they can make a world. And he says, all right, or they can make man. He says, okay, go for it. And they start to gather up dirt. He says, no, 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 no. You got to get your own dirt. <laughs> <laughs> we do, everywhere we look, realize that uh, we are dependent creatures, that we aren't self-sufficient. Uh, you know, as this man was writing, we have an arm? Well, yeah, but, but why? And who gave it? And why do I get one? And why do some people not have full use of their limbs? And I have been blessed in this particular way. I can bake cakes, sure, but who supplied the knowledge to do this? Who was the first magician that thought, if I mix all these things together, a cake comes out if you heat it up enough? I mean, that, you know, those things should blow your mind, you know. I mean, who ate moldy cheese the first time? It was like, this might be a good idea. You know that was a dare, you know, some older brother <laughs> to a younger brother. But I mean, the idea, how does yeast work anyway? Why does flour rise? And what is the mystery that I behold as I behold these things? If you don't ever have time to have those kind of thoughts, then you'll never get beyond the realities that this world is not all that there is, that there's something behind it. Often our American goal for free time is simply entertainment and play, but it's based on escape. True leisure is not seeking to escape from reality. It is seeking to escape so we might see reality for the first time maybe in a long time, a way of helping us not get lost in the mirage of the American dream. Well, hopefully this sounds in one sense a bit familiar because the reality is leisure is born on Sunday. Um, you know, the idea of leisure isn't something that the philosophers came up with. It was something that was rooted in creation by God himself. That the Sabbath really is the source of what we talk about when we talk about leisure. You know, leisure is God's idea. And in fact, he commands it, you know, and then we've been grumbling ever since. Um, and not only is it God's idea, it's the very goal of our life. You know, leisure is where you're headed. It, and, you know, as you, you know, we'll talk about this, but when you think of heaven, you know, the idea of delighting and enjoying and beholding and embracing and just being, no longer acquiring or accomplishing, that is the end result and the culmination of our salvation. Uh, you know, the, our working days will be over. You know, they will be, uh, it'll be leisure time from then on out. Our job there will be joy and our duty will be delight. There'll be nothing to gain or prove Nothing to accomplish in the way that we have to now. 
Well, historically, leisure's basis is found in religion. You know, when we talk about the holiday season, I don't think, you know, it's too hard to see where that word comes from. It comes from holy days, you know, that there were days that were set aside for a certain sort of contemplation. A day of ceasing for the sake of embracing and delighting. So when you think of holidays, you know, Christmas, you're all going to be off work for the most part, right? For most of us, we get Christmas off. And you're stopping your normal labors. Why? To embrace something. Uh, you know, in this, in this world that also speaks to the world to come. Um, a day of ceasing uh, for the sake of embracing and delighting where time is marked off, right? We mark off special time. This time can't be interrupted with other things. This is celebration time. Uh, and in religion, we mark off space, right? There are holy spaces. There's, you know, the temple and the Sabbath are God's holy time and his holy space where in one sense, this world is interrupted by the next world uh, and we're confronted with things that go beyond this life. Um, I'm not here to lecture uh, on the rules of the Sabbath or whether you should buy milk if you run out or go out to lunch Um, because typically that's how we get introduced to it. I remember when I first became a Sabbatarian, I was the most miserable Sabbatarian and not because I wasn't uh, gung-ho about it. I was in all the wrong ways Um, and my wife has the, you know, the... uh, the emotional scars to, to prove it. Uh, we did run out of milk on a Sunday, and I was like, no way. And, you know, we had a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and like, we are not going to the store because God would not like it. Um, but I think we get caught up in the Sabbath viewing it by the way of the negative. What, what can't we do on this day? And that is not really the intention either of this talk, nor do I think it's a good way to even consider the Sabbath. You know, you don't talk about parties by saying, no, here's the things you can't do when you come to the party tonight. Um, you know, we're not going to be playing tackle football in the living room. You, know, you start talking about, well, here's all the, you know, the stuff that's going to be offered. And what happens? No one thinks about the things that, you know, that aren't being offered. They want to embrace what's there. And that's the way that the Sabbath is presented to us often in Scripture. This principle of leisure is found in the Sabbath in order, and God gives us a day so that we can become delighters and enjoyers, partakers, humans made in the image of God to reorient uh, and to fill our days uh, rightly. And so the first thing I want us to see about the Sabbath is that it's an all done uh, in order to enjoy. Uh, The why of the Sabbath is originally given in Exodus 20, and God gives several different grounds for the Sabbath, but the first ground that he gives in Exodus 20 is because in six days he made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, you do the same thing. So notice what the the grounding is. I worked and rested, you work and rest. Um, Because God did something first. Notice he created and then he blessed and made it holy. We are invited into the inactivity of God, if you will. Um, And God's rest, we know, isn't because he was tired. It wasn't weariness. God didn't stop on the Sabbath because he needed a nap. That can't be the entirety of what's going on on the Lord's day. Uh, He stopped because he was done. He was done with his creative work, right? He saw it all. He said it was very good. And, you know, what do you do when the job's over? You know, he said, okay, I have ceased from that. Now that the job is done, I'm going to stop on this day and look back and enjoy the things that I've made. It was an appreciation and a resting in the completion of, of, the, the, uh, of uh, the creation reality. It's the all done to the world. Um, well, when we celebrate on the Sabbath, we are to cease, we are to rest, in one sense, to consider the finished creation of God. And we'll get into the redemption portion next. But 
In creation, he made and rested, and he delighted in what he made. Well, on the Lord's day, we are to delight in the creation that God made, to truly consider it, to pay attention to it. Uh, it is a blessed day that reflects a very good project by God. Um, and in that considering, uh, we are to be grateful for the gift and the giver. Um, we talked about this uh, plenty in the last hour, but consider that, that first day of creation. You know, you're Adam. You wake up, you know, full grown, in a garden that is named delight. God's not even trying to hide what he's doing. You know, it's not like he's like, well, here's Eden, but don't get too excited about how fun it's going to be. He names the place delight. uh, And he's placed there having done nothing. He gains existence and valuable real estate free of charge, food of every sort from uh, all manner of trees that he's told he freely can partake of, which he did not plant, he did not work to put there. He simply is gifted them and told to enjoy them. He has brought a woman with no courting, no give and take of the dating scene, uh, no competition, which every man's like, thank God, uh, because she was exceedingly beautiful. He's given this woman uh, as the only man on earth, and then not only given permission, but commanded to know her in the biblical sense. I mean, this is the giftedness of life that Adam has given on the first day of creation. Um, And it didn't have to be. You didn't have to be. And we should rejoice because it could have been nothing at all. But here we are. And so on the Lord's Day, in the Sabbath, we're ceasing to recognize this by stopping uh, and stop, stopping, try, uh, stopping from our busyness of trying to dominate the world and to simply enjoy it. It points us back to our maker who is contented in his creation uh, and is done with his work. We are, again, the priests of creation. And creation only has one person that can speak its voice for it, and it's us. All of creation, uh, in one sense, is counting on us as its priests to declare how glorious and, uh, the creation is and how good the maker is. Uh, and in, uh, in us, creation can sing about the good work of God. We are to offer then, on, on the Sabbath, surely, the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. But part of that is not just in the singing of God's praises and in the thanking of him in corporate worship, but in delighting in the things that we just sang about uh, for the entirety of the day. Um, it is a ceasing, uh, as, as we've talked about, to enjoy. Uh, in the Sabbath, God has put a closed sign on the world. And he said, no one here works like a slave. Free time for everyone. Free time to look around and to give thanks. Free time to love things and to love people. For things and people that the weak would want to swallow up in our busyness and with our callings, good callings, noble callings, yet not our eternal callings. Time to slow down for the things that we often rush by. Time to eat and be satisfied, to read a book, and yes, if you need to, take a nap. But time to to be and to be present, to be actually present in this world with the people that you love. You know, to take a moment to study the folds in your baby's legs knowing that they just won't be there forever. You know, Lord willing. They might come back later. Um, (laughs) But not not only is Sabbath an all done uh, to creation, it's all done to our being slaves. It's an all done to our being slaves. As we mentioned, since the fall, we live in a world of proving. You know, got to do more, got to be more, uh, as they said in Dead Poets Society. 
It's a world of avoiding uh, and don't stop or you might remember you know, that it's all going to end someday. But God gives Israel Sabbath to stop and remember that they are no longer slaves, that they have been redeemed. And notice the second ground that's given for the Sabbath day. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he says, On this day you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. So the second grounding is you were a slave and now you're not. The Lord redeemed you. Uh, and therefore, take the day off and consider that. You know, enjoy that. God gives us this day for the same end. Uh, it stops, um, it, it, it's a stopping that makes you come face to face with the question of in whom do you trust? Or in what do you trust? I mean, we can look to our past, we can see God's action and salvation as it's presented in the preaching of the gospel and the giving of bread and wine and remember that we are safe because of him. That we don't have to create our own future. That it's already been created and secured by God himself. We can stop to realize that as big as this world is, and as small of a part as we have to play, that God really is in control. I mean, think about your actual ability to uh, do anything about the global economy or to change you know, what's going on in the stock market or to rectify the political landscape. And then think about all the time in the week that you spend fretting and talking and yelling about it as if like at any moment they're going to call you and ask for some help in regard to these things. The Lord's Day gives you permission to be like... Uh, all of this is so far out of my control, but I know that there is a God who's delivered me from slavery into a land of promise, and that therefore these things don't need to be handled and attempted to be possessed or controlled by me. That we have need truly of nothing. That we're reminded of that Lord's day after Lord's day, that we are enough, and we have enough, because God is our possession. Um, we can do nothing on the Lord's day, and simply think of what is done. And God says, like, I really want you to do that. <laughs> uh, and even that we have a hard time trusting him with. Let's accomplish nothing on this day because he's taking care of everything. So we have time to stop and appreciate. And if free, then we shouldn't be slaves. We don't have to avoid the void. We know that we've been purchased to true meaning and a secure future. And our work is over and it's done. So therefore, we can sit back and sing a song, you know, we can pass the tobacco to one another, metaphorically speaking. Whether we do well tomorrow or not, the end is the same. Whether we get promoted or not, I know who I am, and that God is my portion and my provision forever. That we're given back to a world after the Lord's day, not of earning, but of enjoyment. Not of trumping one another, but of loving one another. Because it's done. And we don't need to prove ourselves anymore because it's been proven and vindicated in the resurrection and ascension of the Son. But the Sabbath is also the all done of all things. So it's the all done of creation, of our, of our own works and trying to, you know, uh, to, to control our lives. But it's, Sabbath is also the goal of all of creation. That's where we're headed. Sabbath is our destiny. It's not just something we do now, you know where we sit on the couch and the kids aren't allowed to talk or play. Uh, which if you're doing it that way, hopefully by the end of this, you'll see that you're doing it wrong. Um, and I won't tell my story, Dale. <laughs> um, Hebrews 4 tells us, 
For we, have believed, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So without getting into all the exegesis and just trying to show you the, the bare outline, uh, the author of Hebrews is saying, God said he wanted people to enter his rest. He spoke of the seventh day on which he rested at his rest. And so now he's still holding out that rest to everybody, that there's this rest remaining for everybody to enter. So in short summary, Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews is saying, the seventh day of God is what we're all being invited into. It's another way to talk about the new creation or heaven is the Sabbath day. We will enter and enjoy God's rest with him. We will share it with him. We're being invited into it. He says in verse 9, So therefore there remains a Sabbath rest or a a Sabbatismos for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just like God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short because of disobedience. We will join God in his own enjoyment. His Sabbath will become ours. Uh, And our destination defines nearly everything. You know, where you are headed should, at least in theory, have a lot of bearing on the decisions you make along the way, you know. If you know the end, uh, then that should have some impact on what you're doing in the middle, which poses a real problem for the modern man, you know, because as the Beatles pointed out in their nihilistic anthem, you know, he's a real nowhere man, sitting in a nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. He doesn't have a point of view. He knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? And we should be able to answer that back. No. (laughs) Uh, But because the nowhere man doesn't know where he's going, he has no idea how to get there. And that is a problem for modern man indeed. We are born and we die and there's plenty of absurdity and heartache in between. And if we add that there's an uncertain ending or no ending at all, well, then what? You know, it's all one just big show about nothing going nowhere. Uh, Maybe you've seen the film No Country for Old Men. I'm always afraid to say titles out loud. I'm not recommending it necessarily. I'm just saying it exists. Um, But at the end of the film, uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character is sitting at the table recounting a dream that he's had. He describes how he and his father were riding through a cold and snowy mountain pass. And his father rides past without looking at Bell, carrying a fire in his horn. And as he's, he was, quote, going on ahead, fixing to make a fire in all that dark and all that cold, Bell says, I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And his wife asks him at the end of the film, well, then what happened? And before the movie ends abruptly, he says, and then I woke up. And what the Coen brothers are trying to say is, you know, this idea that our you know, our fathers used to say that they would go on ahead and there's this better future there and there'll be a fire that we're all warmed by, that, you know, Bell's really come to terms with the reality. No one's there waiting for him. There is no fire to be warmed by, that, you know, if you're really going to wake up and be mature, there is no future, there is nowhere history is headed. Well, you and I don't have that problem. And yet, we're often convinced by the philosophies of this age to live just like people who do have that problem. And the Sabbath day, what it's trying to do is to remind us that you do have a future that should impact the way that you embrace everything in this present life. And it should define for you the way that you encounter uh, and partake of those things. You know, our, 
Um, if we're only born to die and suffer uh, in, the, in, the, in between time, between birth and death, why do things like celebrate the day of one birth, one's birth? Like, why have a birthday party? You know, if you know that like, this is just a setup for ultimate destruction, there's nothing to celebrate. You know, you're born and, you know, there's going to be cancer along the way, at least with someone you love, if not yourself. There's going to be pain. There's going to be heartache. Your kids will do things to hurt you. Your parents will damage you. Uh, and then you'll die. You know, but anyway, let's have a cake and light the candles. Um, but we stop for things like weekly Sabbath to contemplate and to enjoy and to take in the long view and to say that we have a right to celebrate everything because it all finds its meaning in the end goal itself. Everything all of a sudden is filled with meaning and goodness uh, and worth because we know it doesn't end in a tragedy, but in a comedy. You know, our mode of celebration would be what the Eagles described in Hotel California. You know, some dance to remember. Uh, but in a world that has no good future, you can only dance to forget, right? Uh, but the Christian is the only person in the world that can truly celebrate anything because he is remembering and knowing that everything works out in the end that it all will be okay, that even in the midst of the worst tragedies of this life, there is still joy underneath. Not that it takes away the pain. It surely does not. Suffering is real. Uh, tragedy is real. But what's interesting, you embrace this, then you can really suffer too. You can suffer with people too, uh, knowing that you can tell the truth that this really is the pits. Like, this isn't something that's supposed to be here. Death is wrong and tragic and we hate it. But it is not the ultimate thing. It is not the last word. While we can, be uh, we can be vexed, we understand that life is not ultimately one big vexation. That there is a happy ending. Um, and this does have theological, moral, and even timekeeping implications. We have a moral obligation to God and the world to get it right. Because we are truly the only ones who get it. Um, I mean, think about it. To sacrifice something like time... To waste, I mean, can you imagine if you were an advertiser and you could get every Christian in America to give you one full day of their time? What would you pay to get that? And every Lord's Day, God says, go out and waste a really valuable piece of time. Just give it away for your own rest, for your own restoration, for my glory. Something that is of great value, I give you permission to squander. And then... You know, write a check and give money away that you worked really, really hard for and you will see no at least tangible expression of what you've acquired by giving away. I mean, people think you're nuts. And the only way you could possibly live like that is if this thing isn't it, right? If time really is a resource that we're not worried about squandering, that it will be given back to us and pay, uh, repaid to us in spades, uh, it only makes sense if life and time in this life isn't ultimate, that there's something more lovely and better than this place. As Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. But I wonder if we believe those words. I mean, notice the trajectory of the Bible. It's hard to miss unless you've been conditioned to do so, which many of us have. I mean, the, garden, uh, the story starts in a garden full of delight. Uh, when God's people are redeemed, he tells them he'll go to a land flowing with milk and honey. When he shows up in human flesh, the first sign that the Christ does is to make an imprudent amount of wine at a party. 
Uh, and his ministry is characterized by his enemies as a ministry of eating and drinking with all of the wrong people, tax collectors and sinners, and he wears all of the wrong brands, you know, wine bibber and glutton, and the story comes to a close, and when it does, it closes at a party, the feast of all feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is not trying to hide his intentions for our joy. And what about when Jesus came? Think about the sorts of things he did on the Sabbath. I mean, this is where, if you want to see the meaning of the Sabbath, see what God himself does on the Sabbath. He heals the sick. A man with a withered hand is made whole. The blind are given sight. The hungry are fed. Those crippled by sin are pronounced and absolved, uh, pronounced forgiven and absolved uh, in his presence. Does that sound like any verse in the Bible you've heard before? You know, in that place, there'll be no more sickness and no more sorrow and no more death. When Christ acts on the Sabbath and he keeps acting on the Sabbath, much to the chagrin of his enemies, right? It's like, you could have done that same thing on Tuesday. We'd have no beef with you. Uh, But the fact that you're making that guy take up his mat on the Sabbath is really frustrating us. It's not an accident that he keeps doing it on the quote-unquote wrong day. It's to show us the meaning of the Sabbath. That day that we will enter into will be a day where we're healed from all of our diseases. We're set free from all of our uh, uh, imprisonment and all of our slavery and all of our addiction. All of our illness will be gone. All of those we've loved uh, that have known the Lord will be restored to. Uh, Even our sins will be no more and there'll be no more threat that they would ever creep in and destroy the beauty that has been made. Thus leisure is born uh, on this particular day. You know, it really is the Sabbath day that gives to us permission for not only leisure on the Lord's day, but leisure at other times because it is our actual destiny. Um, And because that is so, we should see why these other forms of leisure beyond the Sabbath are beneficial. Uh, I'm going to do this in 15 minutes or less. Um, that's possible. I promise that it is in my own mind. I'm trying to make myself promises. Um, if you look at other forms of leisure, you will find that not only do they reflect the Sabbath, they're first talked about uh, what the Sabbath will be like, and they're born from there. So certain forms of leisure like the keeping of a feast, right? So a feast day is a leisure day, or, or play, playing anything, you know, is leisure time. Um, things like, you know, getting caught up in, an, in a narrative, whether it be a stage play or a movie or, or a piece of literature, these are engagements with leisure. No, it's not just shutting your brain off, it's engaging in something. And those things, if you'll notice, they, they have a character and a hue to them. And God's not afraid to say, by the way, that's what heaven's like. You know, if you want to know what heaven's like, it's like these things, it's like a party. Uh, it's like playtime. You know, it's like a really good story that you're a part of that has a very happy ending. And then he says, and I want you to keep the Sabbath to remind you of that place. And then we go, okay, well, so then we should stop, you know, doing anything that's fun. Make sure we take a nap. Uh, And whatever we do, make sure not to have too good of a time because that would... We somehow have flipped the good thing and made it, you know, an oppressive thing, which we do all the time because that's Satan's tactic, right? Uh, There's one tree that you can't eat from. What does Satan say? Didn't God say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? You know, he changes it from one no to like, well, God's just a miser. He doesn't want you to have any fun. But notice what the Bible says, for instance, concerning feasting uh, as a form of leisure. 
It tells us that we should do it because the world ends in a feast. Jeremiah 31, 4. We'll hear about more of this on Sunday. I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in dances, uh, in the dances of those who rejoice. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob. He's redeemed him from the hands of those too strong for him. And they shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, over the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life shall be like a watered garden. Sounds familiar. And they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. And I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will, feed, uh, I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. Notice when God talks about his goodness, when he talks about the last day, the restoration of all things, he goes from, and they will join me. How will they enjoy me? There's going to be grain and wine and oil and dancing. You know, the last day, the Sabbath day, according to God, is a feast day. And so our feast days should, again, because they are leisure time, you've got several feast days coming up. You've got Thanksgiving and you've got Christmas uh, and you have a Sunday every week in which to do this. They should reflect the character of this. Uh, if we're going to be tempting ourselves and our children and you know, our communities toward heaven, we should do things that look a little bit like heaven, right? As opposed to saying, you know, here's all the things you can't do, so anyway, do you want to come to heaven? <laughs> uh, and that's how God tempts us. He's not afraid to say, hey, when you get there, there's going to be wine and oil and dancing. He's not at all ashamed. He doesn't blush at all to say those things. He doesn't feel like it's beneath him to make it plain that that's what heaven's like. So what is a feast? I mean... The core principles that, necessitate, uh, that, are, that are necessary for a feast to be a feast is first you interrupt the ordinary and you insert something special, right? You stop the working days and you put in a special day. That sounds again like the Sabbath, but all these things again are born there. Uh, it interrupts time and routine. You can't have a holiday every day or it isn't a holiday. Uh, you can't feast though while doing your normal labor either. You know, those people who try to say, well, I'll, I'll pop into Thanksgiving, you know, for the 30 minutes when dinner's being served. You can't feast like that. You've got to stop what you're doing to embrace the event, right, and to become part of it. My mother is, uh, who I love, Mom, if you're listening to this dearly. She's wonderful and loves all my sermons. Um, she would always say when we try to have these extravagant, you know, parties for our kids on Christmas, she's like, I mean, why do we go through all this work? You know, you, it's just going to all be gone in an hour, and then there's this mess, and we've got to do dishes. And it's like, you know, you are missing the point, woman. I mean, that, that of course it's going to be different, and of course it's going to cause labor, and of course it's going to be more expensive than it is going to be cheap. That is the very point of the thing. It is a willingness to give away and to, quote-unquote, waste, because you know that there's a world where there is a superabundance of things where you'll never lack, and you want to enter into a bit of that world ahead of time and to enjoy it. And that's what a real feast does. It takes us elsewhere for the time being. It gives us a little taste of the things to come, which means, again, you can't understand heaven, the goal of your very life, if you don't at least try to begin to practice feasting here and to enjoy it. You know, you want to be tempted to heaven? Well, then learn how to have a good party and be like, you know, I want more of that. What should I do? Keep on repenting and believing. That's what you should do. Um, it is a good time, but it is not just a good time. Uh, in order for anything to be good requires investing it with meaning uh, and so forth. Uh, what is the greatest good of man? I mean, notice the trajectory of our humanity. 
that there is a telos, there is an end, there's an aim for which we are headed. We believe and we know that the new creation or the beatific vision, whatever you want to call it, it is the good life. It's only then that we'll be able to partake of the best of life in fullness, seeing things as they are, enjoying them rightly, knowing and living in the world moment by moment, shot through with the goodness of God, and being able to identify it as such and embrace it as such and to give it away rightly, you know, uh, in both uh, uh, in love and in reception. So in a very real sense, in the deepest sense, a feast is stopping time and stopping life for a good time in order to contemplate and enjoy that which is meaningful and lasting and solid and eternal. And it doesn't mean you have to, you know, every moment of Christmas say like, you enjoying that present? That's, you know, so remember heaven. Uh, you enjoy the thing, and it's that your heart wells up in the glory of the thing. Remember that there's far more glorious things coming. And that even in the midst of your suffering, I mean, even if this Christmas someone's not there that used to be there and that's heartbreaking, that those moments of joy also remind you that that tinge of pain won't last forever either, that it will be swallowed up in the victory of the resurrection. We only renounce things if we love other things more. You know, why buy gifts for others that won't benefit you? <laughs> why buy a piece of meat that will be gone in an hour but cost you a day's work? Why pour out, you know, a bottle of wine that isn't two buck chuck, that's not two bucks anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, because you love something more than those things, right? hopefully the people that you're giving them to, but beyond that, the one who gave you those people. Uh, and that's part of what feasting does for us. You know, our inability to be festive means that we're glued down here and we can't break free, we can't be released. And festivity is trying to release us from the things here that hold us down. You know, we do dance to remember. Um, and I need to move quickly on, uh, so we're leaving that point. Um, even though I didn't conclude it well, we're gonna, we'll talk about that more on Sunday morning in the sermon. The other, another way that uh, the Bible describes play, this is going to have to be the last one that I do. There are other uh, avenues for this. The other way that the Bible describes heaven is that there will be play in heaven. Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, Zechariah 8. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will sit in the streets of Jerusalem each with his staff in his hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Um, well, first, you know, we realize play is not just, we should realize play is not just for kids. And remember, and again, without getting myself in too much trouble or saying more than, you know, uh, maybe should be said, all of these things, if they are pointing to the last day, are also reflective of what Sabbath should look like. Uh, it should be a day of delight. You know, your children should look forward to the Sabbath more than they look forward to other days. Now, I'm not saying this is good advice, but a minister in our presbytery told me a story, and I love this story, and I love him because he tried it, even though it didn't work. Uh, he made a rule in his home uh, that they could not play video games on any day except Sunday. Now, you know, some of you are like, okay, no. <laughs> and uh, his goal in that was to support this very idea. He wanted his children. Uh, yes, to delight in the fellowship of the saints, but to, to associate this day with the best day of the week. This is what it, he said they had to finally cut it off because he would hear their little feet at 3.30 in the morning running across the living room to start playing the video games. But the idea, you get the kind of uh, idea of what he was going after. Um, 
You know, while there is such a thing as child's play, play is not just for kids. You know, while, you know, miniature golf may be child's play, although I'm pretty serious about it when I play. Um, you know, golf is play all the same, maybe just in its, you know, its maturated form. Uh, Michael Novak writes this, how could I be 40 years old and still care about what happens to the Dodgers? Um, why are some of you 55 and you still care about, you know, who wins a game with an odd-shaped ball this afternoon? Um, is that okay? Is it a waste? Is it silly? I mean, what about the opera or the plays or movies? You know, true playfulness, as you consider it, does not acquire or gain or subdue the earth in any lasting way. Its sole focus is to enjoy some portion of what God has given. There is no time in play. There's only the present. I mean, you've known that. I mean, remember the glory of childhood when you'd have to finally be dragged in from outside? And why? Because it was like, there is no time. There's no clock on this thing, you know? Uh, it keeps its own time when it does it. You know, when play does have time involved, it keeps its own time that's separate from the time of the earth. Well, again, does that remind you of anything? You know, when we are in play, we are in contact for a brief moment with uh, an analogy of the world to come, where time is no more, where delight is the aim, where there's nothing to gain or subdue or uh, overcome. There is just this thing you're interacting with, and because there is this other, this thing that you're doing, you can actually enjoy it because you're not narcissistically focused on yourself for this brief moment. There's something bigger and better and more enjoyable. It is a glimpse, again, of the internal Sabbath. Um, Play is a comprehensive experience that engages the body and the mind and the will and the senses and the emotions. For a brief moment, we are whole people. We're actually integrated, right? We're not distracted by this or that or torn, you know, here and there. Uh, if you ever really get involved in playing, even if it's Monopoly in the house, uh, which I've flipped over many a Monopoly board in my childhood, but I have grown since then, and now I just get really mad as soon as they start buying the good properties. Um, <laughs> Instead of being fragmented and divided, we are whole. We're fully engaged, right, with the thing, with ourselves, and with the other. And play is social. We play with. Uh, and again, these things are not just happy accidents. They reflect the, the deep things that go beyond them, which is our eternal time uh, with God. You know, we don't play so that. We play, and sometimes this or that has a benefit. Maybe you remember uh, Chariots of Fire, uh, and I really am going to land this plane, I promise. Um, when Harold Abrams was asked if he loved to run, and he said, you know, I'm more of an addict. It's a compulsion. Uh, he had weaponized, if you will, his running. He says as he waits for that final 100-yard dash, quote, 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. He has lost, you know, the idea of delight and play, but when Liddell is asked... He says, you know, I know that I was created for a purpose. I know that I was made for China, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I can feel his pleasure that, you know, just delighting in this thing. Notice he didn't divorce it from God's own delight in the thing. Um, uh, how, can I, how can I actually land this when we're not at the end? Um, while it is, you know, there is this as-ifness to play, um, and there is a ceasing because of that of our daily problems and routine. I mean, this is a tough one, I think, for people because the idea is how can we really delight, especially in trivial things when there are real problems going on in the world? I mean, there really is 
poverty and the church is suffering in other nations. There really is war. You know, how do you, you know, frolic about and do these silly things over here, where, you know, if you're golfing with funny pants on and, you know, these goofy shirts, while there's real problems over here? Uh, well, again, play in that way shows us that none of those things, even the problems, are ultimate. Part of why play is helpful is that it reminds us that there's a world beyond this world that we're interacting with. Um, you know, how did the Holocaust Jews play music in the German internment? Uh, even the conductor of the Jewish symphony said during that time, it's because music is beyond politics. There was something more rooted. The beauty was more lasting than the pain that they were going through. You know, maybe you remember the Christmas truce of 1914, you know, the idea that everyone agreed that even though we're in the midst of war, this war couldn't possibly be ultimate, that there's a world beyond this. Um, and while we don't play to gain, you do gain a ton in the uselessness of it. Um, and so I'll end with this. We're oddly given back to the world when we enjoy things rightly, when we, when we play with them in the right way. I mean, I surf and... Uh, it is one of the few moments, one, there's no cell phone in the water, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, and as you're facing out uh, into the ocean waiting for sets to come, there's not a building in sight and rarely is there a human. It's very hard to talk in the water because it's just too loud. Uh, and after surfing, while you may say, well, you just wasted you know, three hours in the water, you could have been doing something useful. Why is it that when I'm driving home, I wanna be a better person, you know, a better father, know, a more faithful minister, because there's this reorienting of yourself to the true and the good and the beautiful. You know, why after a good novel does your heart swell with love for the world and for those around you? Uh, you know, for a moment we feel united and we really are given back uh, in a way that God uh, intends. We're revitalized. There are these little baby resurrections, you know, that are headed to a full-grown one on the last day. I really am ending, even though I have a really good quote that I'm going to skip. Um, so in a way, it simply allows us to be alive. It submits itself to the smallest world. But in doing so, in play, you submit yourself, you enter into this unknown great world, kind of like Lucy through the wardrobe. Um, through play, we're reminded that magic is real, there's more to this world than meets the eye, that we're not just our job or our bank account or what we've acquired that there really is a world to come, that the whole thing is a gift, that it's going from creation to new creation, and we become like God by taking the time to enjoy this creation, which will be our full-time employ in the creation to come. And so I end with this. Chesterton writes, I would much rather be ruled by men who know how to play than by men who do not know how to play. It is not only possible to say a great deal in praise of play, it is really possible to say the highest things in praise of it, it might reasonably be maintained that the true object of all human life is play. Earth is a task garden. Heaven is a playground. To be at last in such secure innocence that one can juggle with the universe and the stars. To be so good that one can treat everything as a joke. That may be perhaps the real end and final holiday of human souls. When we really are holy, we may regard the universe as a lark. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for your goodness to us in the gospel. These things are not divorced from that. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that we would learn how to embrace well uh, in such a way that we can give away well. <laughs>
Lord, we want to be whole persons. We can feel, Lord, how thin we are. Uh, Lord, how tattered we are in this age that really is seeking to strip away from us the good things in life. But we thank you that that's not you. <laughs> that's not your end for us. Lord, you want us body and soul in your presence, enjoying the goodness of the good life. And we thank you, Lord God, that you give us little interruptions in this life to taste it. And I would pray for these people that you would grant them the grace to taste and see that you are good through the good things in this world. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the depth of your riches, how immeasurable, how unsearchable uh, that you have laid on us in Jesus Christ forevermore. Lord, please bless our continued fellowship. Thank you for the uh, instruction that we've had. We pray, Lord, that um, it would not just refresh us, but um, uh, change us and help us to know you more, uh, to love you more, to enjoy you more. Uh, Please bless the food we're about to eat and watch over us as we return home and celebrate you tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.